Welcome to Corrosion Chronicles, an original podcast series produced by the Materials Technology Institute. I'm Heather Elaine, the Executive Director of MTI, and I'm here with my co-host, Mark Cook, Materials Specialist with the Dow Chemical Company. Hi, Mark. Hey, Heather. We're here with Ajit Mishra, Materials Engineering Consultant at Corteva AgroScience, where he's worked since 2019. Before Corteva, Ajit worked for Haynes International as a Staff Engineer and Applications Development Manager and as a senior corrosion engineer at Toyota before that in Belgium. His areas of expertise are materials of construction selection, asset compatibility, corrosion testing, and analysis. So he's published about 40 manuscripts and journals and conferences, and he's been a co-inventor of an alloy patent. So we're gonna ask him about that today. He's also been really heavily involved in NACE and AM, which is now AMPP. And he has undergrad in metallurgical engineering, master's in material science and a PhD in chemistry, which I think is really interesting that you went from the, the metallurgy and materials engineering to a PhD in chemistry. I know people who have undergrads in chemistry and then have gotten their advanced degrees in materials engineering as they get into this field. So I think that's interesting that you went in that direction. But we're really happy to have you with us. And today we're going to be talking with Ajit about nickel alloys, some of the higher end nickel alloys, higher than stainless steels. And we're just really happy to have you with us today, Ashit. Yeah, thanks, Heather and Mark. And kudos to you guys for in the, taking the initiative of having this podcast. And, and again, thanks to MTI. So yeah, it is uh, an interesting journey moving from metallurgy to material science to chemistry. But at the end of the day, it's all about materials chemistry interaction. So it's always good to have the knowledge in both the areas. <laughs> And some of the best materials engineers that I've known in my career, like Greg Coburn, for example, who was one of the giants in materials engineering in DuPont, had a degree in chemistry. The science of corrosion, it is chemistry at its heart. And I think many of us that loved chemistry got into this field because materials engineering is so heavily chemistry-based. So I love that you did that, but why did you go and get a PhD in chemistry? So originally, I always wanted to work in corrosion from my undergrad days, and I'm working in corrosion from my undergrad days. So I did my master's in material science and engineering from Ohio State University, but the focus was always materials corrosion. And PhD, it was another group, although the group is chemistry, but it's heavily corrosion and electrochemistry centric group with lots of characterization facilities. It's in Canada. So that was the major reason, like I got a good offer <laughs> to work on whatever the areas of interest. So I pursue my interest in nickel alloys and that was my PhD topic, like on localized corrosion of nickel alloys. So yeah, it's a, I'm not a chemist, a true chemist. I think I'm a pseudo chemist, but I have, yeah, I can understand chemistry pretty well. So I'd like to maybe frame this at the beginning, just relative to our other episodes. We had an episode on carbon steel and we had an episode on duplex stainless but here we're talking about something completely different right stainless carbon steel duplex all those things are iron-based alloys we're splitting them out but really they're all majority iron what we're talking about today is completely different right yes it's nickel-based alloys and again like uh, uh, there is definitely a huge advantage from more from the chemical compatibility perspective so nickel-based alloys generally Again, I say generally because there is always an exception. Uh, Nickel-based alloys are generally more uh, corrosion resistance to iron-based alloys, which of course depends upon the actual process condition. But yes, nickel alloys, they are a very different kind of materials. Mechanical ascent won't be significantly different from stainless steel, but yes, chemical compatibility to various corrosive chemicals. 
those can be very different. I think people are very familiar with alloy groupings, aluminum and copper and things like that, but it's tempting to group uh, the nickel alloys in with, with iron base just because there's such a natural progression, right? In the same breath, you just circle right into nickel alloys. So I wanted to make sure we made that clear. It might be interesting to talk about where are nickel alloys relative to iron-based alloys in terms of volume and dollar value? Do you have a feel for that in terms of the market size? Yes, I can talk a bit about that. While working for Haynes, there is a slide from Haynes. It's 90% of the volume in metallic industry or the uses of alloys, it's iron-based alloys. So less than 10% is all the other remaining alloys. So think about, yeah, 90%, almost 85 to 90% are it's iron-based alloys. And, and it's carbon steel. A lot is carbon steel. So carbon steel, from the volume perspective, it's one of the heavily used and widely used material of construction. I can feel it at Koteva, although ours is an extremely corrosive condition, but still we have tons and tons of carbon steel components here. And same I can expect to any other industry, including oil and gas. Yes, from volume, uh, it's heavily iron-based materials. From pricing-wise, nickel alloys, they are much more expensive. And again, like there are so many things which can govern the prices of a material of an alloy. But roughly speaking, it's 4 5 x of 316 stainless steel. Again, it's a very, it's a ballpark number. So I'm talking about, say, hash alloy C276 or alloy C276 from the pricing. Okay. Uh, and it's not just about volume, right? It's, it's criticality of the application. Yes. If you, if you don't, if the application is not all that important or not that uh, difficult, steel is an obvious choice. But if you're putting in a nickel alloy, it's probably something you're pretty concerned about. You can't tolerate failure or leaks. Yeah. Okay. Thanks. I, I think it's just good to establish what we're talking about today. Yeah. And with them being four to five times more expensive, you're not going to use them unless you need to, unless the application really requires it. Yeah, exactly. Yep. Yeah. So uh, again, it's like pure nickel. Then we start with alloying with different alloying elements. So again, nickel is, is it's known from mid 1700s. So it's a pretty old material. And that mid, monel, mid 1700s? Yeah, 17, 1751, if I remember correctly. Sure. Nickel, I think they would have been using nickel long before that. Like it's an element. So I'm surprised it took them. I'm surprised it was that late before people were using, able to mine and refine or just use pure nickel. So pure nickel, it has a German, I don't know the German word, but it means devil. So nickel originated from German Germany and it has the meaning devil because the smelting of copper, they are unable to remove nickel. And that's why it, the name originated uh, <laughs> from Germany. It has a very different, yeah, that's very interesting. And I, I didn't know that a few days back only I was reading about nickel history and uh, I found that. And later on in um, early 1900, the 400, which is model 400 nickel copper alloy was developed. From nickel alloy series, we have nickel and then nickel copper alloy, like four, alloy 400. Then you add chromium, it's nickel chromium, like alloy 600. Then you add molybdenum, and then there is a whole series of alloys, like nickel chrome moly alloys, like C276, C22, alloy 59, 686. And then you start adding, mixing other alloying elements. Yeah. So the nickel chrome moly alloys are, are what <laughs> somebody like me, I, I, we'll get into the manufacturers and trade names, but I, when I think of Hastelloys, I mostly I'm using the C's, right? The C276 and things like that. And that's all nickel chrome mollies, right? Yeah. So there are roughly nine different Hastelloys, two, one or two in a different series of different alloys, like B alloys. 
remaining it's uh, C alloys and then there are some pure nickel chrome moly alloys from other uh, manufacturers. So among uh, nickel alloys, like nickel chrome moly alloys, and there are, there are some alloys which has tungsten also, so it's not only nickel chrome moly, it can be nickel chrome moly tungsten. C2 synthesis is a good example. It has 16 chromium, 16% chromium, 16% moly, 4% tungsten. So it's a nickel chrome moly tungsten alloy. But then there are like we group all these alloys under nickel chrome moly system. And C alloys are nickel chrome moly. And then B alloys like B2 and B3, they are B4, B10. But B2 and B3 are the popular B alloys. And those are primarily nickel moly. So there is no chromium as such. So I guess I'd like to go back and expand into each one of these. The pure nickel that's being used in industry, right? You know, we've got nickel 200 and there's the 201 variant. Can you talk a little bit about where nickel 200 might be used? What's the sweet spot or the niche application for pure nickel? Yes. So a pure nickel, two major areas are application. One is caustic solution. That's one of the best material is still known in caustic application at even elevated temperatures, say 200 degrees Celsius. A nickel 200 is one of the best material known. Uh, like monel nickel copper is also used in those conditions. But again, like nickel 200 is a very well, we have lots of information and lots of a study on nickel 200 in caustic solution. Then hydrofluoric acid, that's another application where people can use the nickel 200. So these are the two areas where I think nickel 200 has its widespread application. Um, okay. And I don't have much experience with hydrofluoric. So I was surprised as I was doing a little digging for this episode that I saw nickel copper alloys are quite good with hydrofluoric as well. That really surprised me. I guess I've always thought HF was dealt with the plastics, and I didn't realize that, that those did so well with HF. Is a nickel copper alloy better than a pure nickel alloy for HF? Or are they pretty comparable? Yes, you are right. Nickel copper system uh, like Monel or Alloy 400, that performs much, much better than nickel 200 is also good material for HF application, but yes, Monel outperforms all the existing alloys uh, from nickel series uh, in, in HF application. Uh, a major concern, I won't say the concern, but major limitation for monel 400 or alloy 400 or even nickel 200 is in presence of oxidant. If there is any oxygen, then these alloys start seeing uh, lots of different kind of corrosion failure mode, even in HF application. Okay, okay. and I, I'll let my ignorance show through here as I will several times during the hour, but is nickels relatively expensive compared to other uh, alloying elements that we're talking about? So the pure nickel alloys, are they necessarily cheaper than nickel copper, nickel chromoly? Yes. So again, it depends upon what exactly is the alloying element. So nickel is expensive, but so is molybdenum. Molybdenum is way more expensive or tungsten. So these are the other alloying elements which we use in say nickel chromoly system. So it has 16% molybdenum, very high moly content. And that significantly increases the price of the alloy. So yes, from that perspective, nickel 200 can be cheaper than nickel chromoly system or monel, which is nickel copper. It's cheaper than a nickel chromoly system. So despite of nickel, which is an expensive alloying element, but then there are other alloying elements in nickel chromoly system, which is even more expensive than nickel. And the amount is high. And that's why we see an increase in price. So like 316 stainless steel, it has 3% molybdenum. But it's cheap just because the amount of moly is not that high. Yeah, yeah, okay. And I did have a lot of experience working with HF back in my previous career. And the Alloy 400 and C276 were the two main go-tos that we would use often. But I would say that at some level with those 
higher nickel alloys, if you were using it in that kind of a critical application, like the slight difference in price from one to the other wasn't a significant factor. It was like you're really trying to pick the right alloy to manage safety and to make sure that you don't get preferential weld corrosion or pitting or cracking or something that could result in an incident. If you're dealing with HF, that's your priority. Mm -hmm. So with the nickel grades, see there's a, a low carbon grade, which has the higher temperature capability. Are there any downsides to the 201 versus the 200? The 201 is the lower carbon grade or is 200 still around just because of, of inertia? You know what I mean? Yeah, I think like and some time back I was looking at nickel 200 and 201 and I think these days uh, you can get dual certified nickel 200, 201 because the only difference or the primarily difference between these two materials is the amount of carbon. So as it's well known, nickel 200, which has a high carbon, it can form graphitization at above 600 Fahrenheit, I think. And there people start talking about nickel 200 or using 201. We had one application where we are using molten salt as a heating media and the temperature is 425 Celsius, 425 degrees Celsius. And there we moved from nickel 200 to 201. Again, like we can, from the chemical compatibility perspective, go back and forth, nickel 200 and 201. But yeah, if the temperature is high above 300 something degrees Celsius, 325, 350 degrees Celsius, then yes, it's good to move to nickel 201 versus nickel 200. Okay. So let's go ahead and talk about what we think of as the Hastelloys, the C alloys. <laughs> Those are such a powerhouse set of alloys for the chemical process industry. And they just seem like they're really well designed to handle all kinds of acid situations, particularly if it's a blend of a bunch of different cats and dogs. Can you just talk about what types of applications those are most used for? Or is there anything more you want to add to that? Yeah, sure. Nickel chrome moly, the way these alloys, and since I have some background or um, experience in alloy development, like during alloy development, you try different recipes. You play with the alloying element composition, like changing the chromium content, changing the molybdenum tungsten, and other minor alloying elements. And one alloying element performs very well in certain conditions. Another alloying element performs very well in certain conditions, like chromium it gives a very good passivation on the surface. And molybdenum, it works very well if localized corrosion like pitting or crevice is a concern. Crevice corrosion is a concern. And then we have the mix of chromium and moly, like nickel chrome moly, like C276. So there you have the mix of different alloying elements so that you can get a good passivation or good corrosion protection. And also if there is a possibility of any localized corrosion, then molybdenum can inhibit the pitting corrosion. And again, it all depends upon the process condition. If the process condition is corrosive, all of these can fail uh, any material. Again, like from the application side, I would look into any application, uh, which is more like acidic halide. So acidic condition with halide, nickel chromoly system, it has a good chance. And then we look into the actual process condition, how high the temperature is, what exactly is the corrosive media, what's the amount of chloride, can we use higher grade stainless steel, which is a cost effective material versus nickel alloys, or we have to go to the nickel alloys like C276, or there are many other alloys in C alloys series, which can perform even better than C276. Again, I think it's from the application side, we can have so many different applications, like in chemical industry, we have any acetic acid application with lots of chloride, 
corrosion resistant mm-hmm. alloy like nickel chrome oil system can work in hf application that's a that's an amazing application hf is one of the most detrimental acid i'm aware of like even in halogen acids like hydrochloric hydrobromic hydrogen iodide hf hf is it's so difficult to handle hf we cannot use a reactive metal alloys we cannot use glass line there is a risk of using a stainless steel iron based alloy and then you are bound to use nickel based alloys and then it's it's a function of temperature how the temperature what's the hf concentration what else is there and then there is a very good this is a niche application for nickel chrome molecule absolutely and so what drives a user to look at the b alloys then the b alloys are nickel based a high molybdenum more like 28% molybdenum and then very low chrome, like one to one and a half percent chrome. So they're really the nickel moly alloys instead of nickel chrome moly. So when are the Bs better than the Cs? Yes, nickel moly alloys, they perform very well in non-oxidizing condition. So non-oxidizing means like a simple example is hydrochloric acid. So different concentration of hydrochloric acid at say elevated temperature, 20% hydrochloric acid at 50 degrees C. So this is one uh, formulation or solution where B alloys can outperform all the other uh, nickel chrome moly alloys. So in non-oxidizing condition, B alloys, just because the moly is the one which gives a huge protection in non-oxidizing acids. So in those conditions, the nickel moly system can work very well. In sulfuric acid, most of the concentration and nickel moly alloys can work very well in acidic acid at a very high temperature 150 170 180 degrees celsius nickel moly alloys can perform very well so till there is no oxidant in the process condition in the solution nickel moly alloys can perform well and but again it comes with the cost b alloys is almost 3x of c276 so so there is a cost associated with using nickel moly system that's a really significant delta yep Yeah, I didn't recognize the cost difference was that much. You said three times, right? That's Yeah. So B2, there are many alloys manufacturers which make B2, but B3, Haines is the only manufacturer who makes B3. Although it's out of patent, so maybe in down the road you can see some other alloys manufacturer who can make B3, but yeah, supply chain is also a concern when you look into the B alloy system. All right, well with that, let's take a short break for a word from our sponsors. Hi, I'm Megan Oaks from BASF. As a reliability engineer, I understand firsthand many of the challenges that processing industry companies face, and I believe sharing technical resources and knowledge across the industry is vital to improving safe, sustainable, and reliable plant operations. That's why I serve as co-chair of the MTI Global Solutions Symposium. In 2024, the symposium returns to Baton Rouge, Louisiana, February 26th through the 28th. And the committee is proud to offer two keynotes featuring topics for sustainable process industries. In addition, we have scheduled five tracks with more than 35 presentations, which focus on emerging technology, sustainability and reliability, non-metallic, bioprocessing and corrosion mechanism, and knowledge management. The event also includes our global solutions marketplace, where 11 exhibit hours are available during networking reception, meals, and breaks. But limited booths remain. On behalf of the symposium committee, I hope you'll join us in Baton Rouge to connect and learn with some of the best in the process industry. Early bird registration is now open through January 26, 2024. To register, purchase a booth, or learn more, visit mti-global.org/mti symposium. 
So I want to ask a little bit more about this oxidizing versus reducing environments and the CLAs versus the BLAs. So I'll give a, a little story to start it off or illustrate maybe is when I was a young maintenance engineer back in the 1990s. Back in the dark ages. <laughs> yeah, exactly. We had a tray in the top of a column that it was parts per million or just a couple percent HCL, but it was pretty hot. And so we had a Hastelay distributor up there. And I was told to go to the warehouse and get the spare. And I brought the spare out and then started learning about it. And one was, I think one was B2 and one was C, but I think it was a single digit C, like a C4 or something like that, if that's such a, if that's a thing. But we would pull out the one Hastelay distributor and put in the other one and then send the one that we removed to the shop to get it rebuilt. And the other guy just said, ah, I don't know, the Haynes guy sold me on trying to speed. I mean, it's no different than the C alloy. Like every year we'd swap it out. They both had a <laughs> and the impression I've gotten is if you've got other components in the system, in that process, we had a whole mismatch of different materials of construction. You had plastic line steel, you had glass line steel, there there might be steel piping in some places bringing inputs into the process and all that. And as soon as you get ferric ions in, in the system and things like that, you can't really claim that you have a reducing environment anymore. And, and so I kind of wonder like, how often does that get misapplied? Is it realistic in a plant environment to have a true reducing environment? Yes. So again, very valid point, Mark. B alloys is a niche alloys. So we have to know our chemistry very well. And we have to control the chemistry very well. Like we have a couple of vessels condensers here at Cotiva where we use B alloys. So again, like you are very right. If it's the upstream, if there is a process of if Iron alloys can be carbon steel, stainless steel, if they have some corrosion attack. And if uh, the solution contains some kind of ferric and again, it's a ferric and not like iron or ferrous iron. And also it should be like Fe3+, plus. that's a strong oxidant, or cupric ion. And there are many other oxidants which can present like peroxide, bleach. These are all the oxidants. So what what about nitric can... acid? Are we counting nitric Yeah, nitric exactly. Nitric acid is a very strong oxidant, like nitrates. A nitrate ion is a very strong oxidant. So all these are like, and there can be many other. These are the known oxidants, and there can be hundreds of oxidant which is not very well known. So we are seeing some kind of, when you mix some kind of chemistry, it starts acting as an oxidizing acid or oxidizing chemistry. So again, like these are the known oxidant. There are, can be many other unknown oxidants, not very well known in, in our industry. We have to be very careful with using B alloys, unless you know the, our chemistry very well, unless you control the chemistry very well. And chemical analysis or sampling is a very good way to look for iron, if, they, if they have a high amount of iron in your, in your process condition, but from any source, then avoid using nickel, nickel moly system. That being said, we have monochloroacetic acid. There is no oxidant in monochloroacetic acid, and the temperature is roughly around 110 degrees Celsius. This is one of the applications. We use B, B2, B3, and it's working fine for 30 plus years. So this is one of the applications where we know okay, what is going into our vessel, and we periodically sample the product, and if there is no oxidant, and we know there is no other alloy which can perform that good as B2 or B3, then we go with that. So, yeah. so how would a C alloy, how would a C276 work in that same environment? Uh, yeah, again, like there is a limitation of like how good C276 can work or C2000 or 686 or alloy 59. These are all nickel chromoly system. We have seen like it works up to certain temperature. And if the temperature is above that, then the corrosion rate goes up. So like the same application, which I mentioned, we can use C276 till 80, 85 degrees Celsius. 
But if you push the temperature to 120, then that the corrosion rate goes up significantly. Right. And this is where your PhD in chemistry is really coming through. <laughs> because, because this is where you do get, you can't avoid getting really into the chemistry of the process yeah. stream as well as the chemistry of the alloy. I was involved in the latest revision of the MTI as an MS3, the HCL one. Yeah. And it was interesting because Paul Crook from Haynes was on the was involved in that editing session and Hero Walia and some other just great materials engineers. And and so I was just a fly on the wall. But Paul, I think it generated a lot of the ISO corrosion curves for some of the various Haynes alloys. And so he was describing what they did in the lab to create an oxidizing environment versus a reducing environment. And I thought that was interesting because you see the chart, it just says oxidizing environment. <laughs> and, uh, you know what I mean? But, but maybe you could speak to that a little bit about in the lab, how do you simulate these environments? Yes, for sure. So uh, I was also involved in uh, data generation for some other LOS, like newer LOS, like hybrid BC1. That's It was developed in 2008, but in our industry, 15 years old LOS is still in <laughs> Yeah, from a data generation perspective, like we play with the amount of ferric ion. So we add different amount of ferric ion, 10 ppm ferric ion, 100 ppm, 1000 ppm. And by virtue of that, you can create the solution more oxidizing. So the base solution can be set 20% hydrochloric acid, but then you start adding different amount of oxidant. And uh, that way you can make the solution, which is more like oxidizing, reducing solution. And then where you, you can very nicely see the effect of the oxidant, like one alloy, like B alloy as a start showing a very high corrosion rate as we increase the amount of ferric ion and CLOS perform very well in oxidant when we have a high amount of oxidant. So from a lab setup, like the simplest approach is adding ferric ion, cupric ion. Ideally, you can try with peroxide, but we don't want to use peroxide in SCL and those kind of just it's very difficult to handle and there are safety issues. Bleach is another oxidant which you can play with. But again, like from alloy industry, they generally pick ferric ion and cupric ion. Those are very strong oxidants. Are there ASTM corrosion tests that are the basic oxidizing acid environments? Yes. So ASTM G28, G48, if you see their standard solution, so these solutions like ASTM G28A or G28B or G48C, D, so all these are a mix of oxidizing reducing kind of solutions. So G48C which is a commonly used test for chromium-containing alloys, primarily for nickel alloys, to assess the possibility of pitting corrosion. So G48C is 6% ferric chloride plus 1% hydrochloric acid. So 1% hydrochloric, that's your reducing environment. And then you add 6% ferric ion. So 6% ferric chloride. So basically, it's again, it's a mix of oxidizing reducing environment. The same thing with ASTM G28A, which is used for sensitization study of nickel chrome moly system and G28A is sulfuric acid with ferric sulfate. So all these are solutions. You can see it's a mix of reducing and oxidizing environment because there only you can see, you can basically make the solution very corrosive or conservative, and you can get the data in short period of time in a lab setting. It, it, maybe it's a silly question, but I, I just want to ask it. Is, uh, well, the corrosion data is often presented as isocorrosion curves for every alloy. I've run into problems with uh, materials like tantalum or, or zirconium where the standard is you use a five mil corrosion curve, right? And, and that can cause a problem with some alloys. Some of those you, you should be designing so that you have zero corrosion rate and you can get in trouble by using those isocorrosion curves. And so I just want to ask with nickel alloys, is there a problem with putting it in a service where you've got a known amount of corrosion? Is that, is that a concern at all, particularly with welds? 
Yes, you are very right. So I can touch uh, on first. So I saw Kurosan while working for Hens. I suggest I used to suggest our customer not to follow blindly ISO Kurosan curves, just because these are interpolated data. So you have few data point and then you uh, join the curve, and then you get a very smooth curve. And that you say, okay, this is our ISO Kurosan line, and below that line, the corrosion rate will be less than say five mils per year. Below, in between these two lines, the corrosion rate will be in between five to twenty mils per year. But we don't know the absolute number. So if possible, ask for the absolute value, like what's the exact number. And these are all the data in ISO corrosion curves. These are all for base metal. There is no weld component here. So if we get these ISO corrosion curves for welding, and which is complicated because there are so many different welding procedures, welding filler wire, and it's complicated. Welding itself is complicated. So that's why a simpler approach is to get ISO corrosion curve for baseline base metal, and that way we can get some understanding. Okay, you can pick a candidate set of alloys. If in certain condition, like if in hydrochloric acid, seeing the isocorrosion line superimposition of say five mils per year isocorrosion line for various alloys, we can get an idea. Okay, what are the candidate alloys where we have to look into? So those are the guidelines you can get from isocorrosion curve. But we should not go beyond that guideline because again, as you mentioned, it won't say whether it's a 0.1 mils per year or it's 4.8 mils per year if it's below five mils per year. And sometimes 4.8 mils per year can, like, yeah, it's not easy to go with that kind of number where you have zero uh, tolerance to metal leaching. And in our world, in ag industries, sometimes we we go with that kind of notion, like there can be toxicity issue with nickel, and that's where we have to be very careful. Like even five mils per year is not acceptable. If you have five mils per year on average in your base metal, then you might have more significant problems with hitting with weld corrosion. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Because then we are just talking about the base metal, but we are not even because the weld can have a much higher corrosion rate. And also isocorrosion curves, they just talk about the uniform corrosion. Nothing about the pitting corrosion, crevice corrosion, stress corrosion, cracking, and other corrosion failure modes. Absolutely. Thanks for that lead into welds. Because I think that's what most of us have always seen in our plants is the problems with all of these alloys is not in the base metal nearly as often as it is in welds. It's in the welds and the crevices, right? And in high stress points or points of erosion, it's the localized <laughs> one. And that's true for every metal. Like I would say just nickel, like I have seen in 10, 11 years, I have seen most of the failures in the welds. So it's like a stainless steel. It fails in the weld. Preferential weld corrosion. You can have pitting corrosion initiate in the welds and everything looks intact. And then you have the leaks in the welded area. In the elbow, we have the bent area. There is a weld stress. You start seeing cracking, pitting. So again, these are the weak reason or weaker reason, which we say like you have to be very careful with. And unfortunately, most of the ASTM standard, they talk about the base metal. We do not, or and not only the ASTMS standard, like the data generated or data generation at uh, alloys manufacturers. I have seen like 95% of the data is for base metal. We should care more about the welds. So let's yeah. talk about how to minimize weld corrosion. Get into some of the specifics, like generalities, but like allo- well, alloying up in the welds or like what are yeah. what are your go-to? Filler metal, I think, would be an interesting place to start. Like- yep. Yeah, alloying up is, is, is a good approach, like over-alloying in the, as a f- over-alloyed filler material. 
but yeah we have to take into consider like we have to be selective it's, it's because some of the times like all these p number that can also fail us recently we had this issue where we had 625 and c276 so we, we are trying to weld these two alloys these two materials so there is a component where one side it was 625 another side it was c276 and whoever the welder they just pick 600 and that has the same p, same p number as 625 and 600 has a much lower resistance than 625 or c276 so even we go with the same p number but then it fails because that person didn't take into consideration the chemical incompatibility of 600 in, in that reason so yes allowing up can be a good approach but yeah we have to discuss with the welding sme and uh, metallurgist to figure out what exactly material you need to use as a filler work so that's one thing a uh, following the welding procedure very carefully that's another way so that we should not be the uh, high heat input should not be in the welded area so it seems obvious but it's not obvious like we have seen so many issues in the weld like uh, the green boundary segregation in the heat affected zone that's the primary reason of failure of uh, c276 weld in the heat affected zone so following the weld procedure carefully that's another thing then after fabrication cleaning the welded area and that's true for any material system like we have recently we have seen some 316 stainless steel vessel showing preferential weld corrosion because of not very well cleaned uh, welded area just to interrupt you there like so for nickel alloy you need to be treating that kind of any reactive metals or anything like that right you using separate having seg- segregated tooling and and that sort of thing to yes exactly uh, there and fabricator good fabricator they do have separate area for the nickel if they are dealing with the nickel company i feel like nickel alloys let's say a shop in a plant they're not going to try and weld zirconium I think they all think, yeah, I can weld Hestley, and but maybe they shouldn't be. Anyway, it's not that similar to stainlesses. I think one of the big things is making sure you're not using wire brushes that are steel, exactly. right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, I remember there was an incident uh, in the previous job. There was a small fab shop which used B3 and they pickled B3 and it dissolved overnight. So uh, the pickling solution is a very strong oxidant. <laughs> Wait, did you put the part in? I thought you put the part in. Where's the part? <laughs> yeah, it's, it's interesting. <laughs> yeah, these are all these are different alloy system. We have to yeah, we have to understand the criticality. What can go wrong? <laughs> What about heat treatment? Is that ever recommended? A very interesting topic. We always suggest uh, to use as in as welded condition. and not to perform any stress relief like what we do for stainless steel and if there is any heat treatment required sometimes it can be advantageous then it should be solution annealing full solution annealing just because all these nickel based alloys in 1200 to 1900 fahrenheit range they are very prone to forming different phases and that known as sensitization in nickel industry so you don't want to sensitize your microstructure because else the mechanical property will go down the material will be very prone to localized corrosion and we use nickel alloys where localized corrosion is a concern so it fails the whole purpose so that's why we a recommendation at least uh, while working for hens that was a recommendation from my side and hens side not to not to do post weld heat treatment not to do stress relief for uh, this uh, nickel chrome moly system or nickel moly system Jen, I think we're both curious. What it's a little bit rare to talk to somebody that's worked for both a supplier and a a chemical producer, a material supplier. Yeah. So, what what would you say about that? What surprised you, and, and <laughs> what have you learned 
from from being on both sides? Yes. So again, there are challenges in both sides. Being a supplier, you do not have to worry much uh, about producer's process condition as such. And first of all, you don't like in the supplier side, they do not get all the information. We have all the confidentiality policies. So we in the producer side cannot reveal the actual process condition. So based on the very limited information, suppliers can suggest certain material. And the other challenge is being in the supplier side, you are very focused in certain material series. Working for Haynes, it was all nickel alloys. So again, like you, you learned a lot about nickel alloys, but again, it's a heavily focused to nickel alloys. Now coming to the producers, like in my first, the very first day, I attended six meetings, all six are on different material series. <laughs> that was very interesting. <laughs> so it was everything like nickel alloys, carbon steel, glass lines, some polymeric material, and some nickel. <laughs> Cortiva and Dower related enough that I know some of what you're dealing with. Yeah, it's all nickel alloys. So it was it was very interesting. And I was not very much. I had background. I have my background is in nickel alloys and some stainless steel. But I had to learn very quickly about carbon steel and a lot about stainless steel, different grades of stainless steel fabrication, welding, and all those things. So those are the fun part and the challenges. And the most important of all of these is the liability issue here is so high. <laughs> being a producer we that was the one thing which a good friend of mine mentioned when i was about to move to kotiva are you willing to take that kind of responsibility what if if you suggest something and it fails we are conservative we all are conservative in our choice of material selection material of construction selection but uh, but at the same time we do not want to suggest overkill material and all those things so that was a big challenge and that's always a challenge many times i had nightmares <laughs> so those are the things which i will just quickly give you an example there is an application where we wanted to try a different material so where c276 was failing every year and we used to proactively replace c276 heat exchanger once a year and the corrosion rate was high so I wanted to try hybrid BC1. This is a newer alloy from Haynes uh, and that was developed in 2008. So while working for Haynes, I, I was very much involved with this material. I worked with the people who developed this alloy like Paul Krug. So I spent almost six years finding application for this alloy while working for Haynes. And when I was here, that was a perfect application where we could have replaced C276 with hybrid BC1. But it took us two and a half years from idea <laughs> to uh, getting the heat exchange. And that was the first heat exchange I built from hybrid BC1 ever. So from idea to bringing uh, a heat exchange made of hybrid BC1 to our side, it took us two and a half years. And we took baby steps. We did everything whatever feasible <laughs> in an industrial scale. Well, it's, a lot, it's a lot of responsibility because the contract is huge. And especially when you know that a lot that will, then also... <laughs> we had to go through so many different steps. So yeah, that's always a challenge. I think Mark and I can relate to that and, and many of our listeners can too. Thank you so much for joining us today, Ashit. This was really a fun and informative talk. I think we all learned a lot and we just appreciate your time. Thanks to everyone listening to this episode of the Corrosion Chronicles. Join us each month as we continue our conversation with subject matter experts discussing materials-related challenges and successes of the process industries. Be sure to subscribe to our podcast on Apple, Spotify, Google, or wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. For more information about the Materials Technology Institute, visit us online at mti-global.org. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time.